So guys, this is real. Like we said at the beginning, yes, you can sell your business. Yes, you can run a business in your pajamas from your living room and build it up. Of course, you have to be serious about it. You have to invest capital. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know it's, it's, you can do all this in your pajamas. You do have to know that stuff. It's not easy breezy. It does take years to do this stuff, usually at least, but it's real. You can really sell a business for a million bucks that you do from home. Thanks for subscribing to the ZonCon podcast, the podcast all about Amazon conversations. These are the tips and tricks to become an Amazon millionaire. Here is your host, Andrew Erickson. He is all things Amazon, and so is this podcast. Let's have an Amazon conversation. Hey guys, welcome to the ZonCon podcast. This is Andrew Erickson, your host as always. Today, I'm excited to introduce Kevin. He is from Thrasio. Thrasio is a relatively large company, or in my eyes at least, a company that had some venture funding behind it to go buy up small little private label businesses like mine and most of the audience here that are listening to this. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me, Andrew. Very excited to be here. Awesome. Great. And thanks for coming. So why don't you tell us, I gave a little intro on Thrasio. Why don't you tell us what is Thrasio? Yeah. Your own so Thrasio is, like you said, sort of an acquirer, but most importantly, an operator of Amazon FBA businesses. We are targeting category leaders within their space and optimizing those listings to drive further growth. But at the heart of it, we are a consumer products company. We think that we're the consumer products company of the next generation where we are, you know, sort of the Procter and Gambles of the past needed to own their own manufacturing verticals. They needed to, you know, spend a bunch of money, sort of fire hose mentality on TV advertising. And then they needed to own retail distribution. For us, obviously, and, and yourself and your listeners, they know that that sort of business model is, is being flipped on its head with e-commerce. Smaller companies can have nimble supply chains you can target your ad spend and you can sell directly to the consumer, whether that be your website or the uh, Amazon platforms or other e-commerce platforms. For us, you know, we are aiming to acquire and operate quality products and offer them to consumers at an affordable price. Nice. That sounds really good. So you say you primarily are operating Amazon businesses, but of course the way that you go about getting those businesses that you operate is by buying them from people like us, the, the small kind of one employee or one founder and maybe like two, three, five, six person teams. Is that kind of like the strategy, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm sure that you and your listeners have found that sort of the landscape of Amazon FBA has shifted from let's call it 2013, 2014, 2015 to today where it's much more competitive. We find it more capital efficient from our standpoint to acquire sort of brands like yourselves or your listeners who are doing a million dollars plus in trailing 12 months revenue, acquire those and sort of be afforded the economies of scale as we sort of grow bigger to acquire and operate those. It, for us, it's more capital efficient. And we also find that it's sort of a, a very interesting exit opportunity for sellers, right? Who may have started this as a side hustle, but most importantly, sort of over time, they've grown to a point where they can't handle the operations anymore, or they can't keep up with sort of inventory purchases as they're putting their own personal balance sheet at risk. And so sort of as Amazon becomes the behemoth that it is, and you know the risks that come along with operating on the Amazon FBA platform, 
as sellers grow to a certain point, they might get too big where in order to take a brand from a million or $5 million of trailing 12 month revenue to, you know, 10 or 15 or $20 million, they're going to need more time. They're going to need more employees, more access to capital, et cetera. And that's not really why they, they started these businesses in the first place. Right. And so we become the premier, I think, exit opportunity for sellers to be able to sort of liquidate their assets. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Sort of our growth right now is through acquiring these sorts of brands and then growing them. To date, we've done, by the end of the quarter, it should be upwards of over 100 acquisitions. And we've done that in about two years. And so we are the largest acquirer and operator within the space. Nice. So you guys heard that over 100 businesses have been bought in the last two years. So yes, selling an online business that you run in your pajamas from your living room can be sold <laughs> for sure. Yes. And it's funny, my uh, father-in-law, I interviewed him at some point. It's not been released yet, but he, he'll be coming on at some point in the podcast. He had a successful business, whatever, at some point, And he was very skeptical. He said, you can't sell that kind of business. I'm like, what are you talking about? I can't sell this kind of business. He goes, no, who would buy something like that? I'm like, there are plenty of people. Here's one oh, yeah. right here. <laughs> buy yeah. this kind of stuff. And it's funny, you know, there was a recent write-up about us in Forbes magazine. It came out yesterday. Today is November 19th. So it came out November 18th. And it was talking about the influx of people who are looking to purchase these sorts of businesses, particularly for Amazon FBA and, you know, within the entire Amazon marketplace and how, you know, call it two years ago, there was no market for these sorts of businesses. And it's just really taken off. And so, yeah, there, there's absolutely a market to be purchased in this space. Who would have guessed that selling stuff on the internet that someone else would want to buy that business? Well, it is true. So yeah. I'm curious, I want to know more about Thrasio. First of all, I want to make sure I'm saying it right. I think it's Thrasio or is it Thras.io or what's the best way of saying it? It's Thrasio. Thrasio, so okay. Sort of how, how the, the, <laughs> the name was started was both our founders are big history buffs and it stems from an Amazonian warrior who was mentioned in Greek mythology. Thras.io just refers to our website name. But we, we hear that question all the time. Wait, I want to know. I love mythology. Wait, do you know the Thras character? I don't know much in detail about him. I just know that it stems from sort of the Greek mythology and he was a great warrior. Nice. That's super cool. And tying it back to the Amazon with the Amazonian warriors. Yep. Nice. Well, if it's an Amazonian warrior, I'm guessing it would be a woman then, not a, not a man hero. That is a great question and something that I need to do a little bit more research on. <laughs> so these history buffs, who are they, these, these founders of this big company? Yeah, so our two founders, are Carlos Cashman and Josh Silverstein, they are serial entrepreneurs. They had started, either sold or took public over, I believe, five companies in different sort of industries and in various sort of categories, right? And they had come across the Amazon FBA platform through one of our now employees, Casey Gossick, founder of Viral Launch. And they really saw the space to be an interesting tool to democratize entrepreneurship. I'm sure you, know, you and your listeners have found that there is such a low barrier to entry to starting your own business with Amazon FBA. And with that, there is prime opportunity for consolidation within the space. And so in that span of time, our founders have been able to you know, raise over $500 million of growth capital while remaining most importantly profitable. So you know, a lot of times you hear people raise a bunch of money, they're not profitable, burning through cash, two or three years down the road, 
things go sideways. Sort of prior to joining Thrashio, I was in the private equity and venture capital world, and you would hear a lot of that, right? So sort of our prime focus is profitability. And we've used that capital to be able to build out what we call our spheres of excellence. So building out a world-class supply chain management team. Everyone knows supply chain management is the pillar of an Amazon FBA business and inventory management, right? A marketing team, a world-class marketing team, brand management team who almost act as mini CEOs for each brand. A search engine optimization team, which is headed up by Casey Goss as well as sort of a product launch team and then our mergers and acquisitions team, which, you know, I'm a part of. And so we've been able to grow from our two founders who started this in September of 2018 to over 300 full-time U.S. employees when offices existed in Boston, New York, and in Houston, Texas, and then over 200 employees overseas. We have an entire division focused on building out a more robust presence in Europe, a UK-based team, a German-based team. We've already done deals in the UK and we're looking heavily at the German market as we speak. So, you know, all good things, I think. Nice. I didn't even think about that. So you guys are buying private label businesses in Europe already? Yes. Yep. Do you know, like, what's your ratio of kind of like US versus non-US? That's a good question. I would say sort of majority is still US, just given sort of the biggest marketplace, right? But, you know, we have done a good amount. I would probably say in the double digits for UK-based deals. And then sort of Germany is our, our next area of where we're going to be attacking, right? It's the second largest marketplace and a lot of opportunity there. Nice. Yeah. So, so Jeremy, watch out. Thrasia yeah. is coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a, have you bought any Chinese-based companies? We haven't. And not to say that we wouldn't, it's just sort of as it relates to a lot of times sort of the different supplier, you know, basically we don't want to get into a spot where purchasing a brand directly from a supplier who might have sort of started a, a brand and sort of undercut other competitors. Not to say that, you know, if the opportunity wasn't right in front of us and it was an excellent opportunity that, you know, we're exclusively against buying Chinese sort of businesses or brands. That's not the case at all, but we just haven't to date. You don't want, because I know that's one thing that when we were talking to you didn't like the idea of us own or the, the brand owning the means of production, right? The, the factory. And so that makes sense. But if it was like a private label company that yeah. was just working with multiple different factories, but didn't own the factories, but they were Chinese based, or let's say even if it was a yeah, Westerner. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah, not a problem. And we've looked at a few, it's just sort of in terms of they never really panned out, but you know, we do look at them and we're more than open to sort of that opportunity. It's, you know, right on both sides, but yeah, it's more sort of the means of production. If the brand also owns the means of production and things along those lines, we might just take a harder look at, but as it relates to sort of a, a true quote unquote private label brand, you know, we have no issue with purchasing Chinese companies. Hmm. It's interesting. So I might get a little tiny philosophical. It used to be that owning the means of production was like the way you got rich. That was like owning the factory, owning the machine and not being obviously the, this is the old fight between, you know, kind of the communist revolution was like the labor was kind of wanting to take over the means of production. Right. But now yeah. we don't want means of production. <laughs> like that, that's like the, you know, we don't want a factory that you have to invest, you know, quarter million dollars for one machine that folds boxes, another quarter million dollars for one machine that, that whatever, injection molded plastic or whatever. Yep. We want to just contract those people out, pay them their 10%, 20% margin on top of their capital investment, 
And then we use the agility of multiple factories competing against each other and then use that to launch a brand, launch a consumer product. So I just find it interesting. I used to work for Qualcomm and they, that's what they do too. They're what they call fabless and fab's a factory, right? And they have 40,000 engineers and they don't own any machines that actually make products. They just contract them out all across Asia. I think it's a cool idea that we've gone to like this proof that we're post-industrial now. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, when I joined Thrasio, that was one of the most fascinating aspects to me as well. I was in the private equity and venture capital space, largely in, in manufacturing and industrials was sort of our bread and butter, but we looked at categories across the board, right? And, you know, I, you walk the floor of a lot of these different manufacturing firms and what have you. And it was just fascinating to me if you're able to outsource and, and really hone in on building a brand message and building brand equity is, is sort of the next generation of sort of the most capital efficient business model, right? And so that's something that fascinates me as well. All right, you guys heard it here. So it is important. The people who are buying your business, right? Thrasio and other buyers, they care more about brand building and having a good, what do you call it? Brand equity, right? Is that the word? Yeah, brand equity, as opposed to owning a bunch of machines or other big assets like that. Yep. Nice. That is fun, man. So you said that you are, so you guys are the, what's the claim? The fastest billion dollar profitable. profitable, Fastest profitable U.S. startup to reach (laughs) that $1 billion U.S. valuation. Nice. It would have been a uh, fun fact. It would have been the fastest profitable startup in the world to reach the $1 billion unicorn valuation. But apparently there was one company like 10 years ago out in the Island of Malta of all places <laughs> to get it there, to get there faster. And so we have to sort of make the claim that it's the fastest profitable us startup, but yeah. And that's just basically saying that our investors are, We've grown to a point that our investors are valuing us at sort of this valuation. Not to say that sort of we are doing a billion dollars of revenue or, or what have you. It's, it's just sort of the way that they value us. That is um, super and, cool. Yeah. And I mean, look, for us, it's a huge marketplace and it's a huge market to capture. And so for right now, you know, a billion dollars is great. It's a nice milestone and, and we're happy with it. But, you know, it's all steam ahead, not just to get bigger, but to just be better, to drive more profitable growth within our brands and to make more sellers, you know, basically millionaires is sort of our goal is, is sort of purchase these businesses, give sellers excellent liquidity and really be able to take their brands to the next level. We generally think that people who start these types of brands, they really enjoy them. And it might've been a passion project. And a lot of times we find that they look at their brands almost like their baby, right? And we understand that and they might come to the understanding, Hey, you know, for whatever reason, we can't continue with, you know, taking care of the baby at this point, we sort of view ourselves as the nanny, right? You know, we're going to find the reasons why the baby might be crying or there might be a hiccup here or there or where we can optimize the business, but we are going to keep the integrity of the brand intact while sort of taking it to the next level, just given our institutional infrastructure. That's cool. I love that analogy. The nanny analogy. That's good. Yeah. So let's get into the nitty and gritty. Let's talk to our audience and tell them, and let's, our audience is people who, well, we target at least people who already have an Amazon business. They're growing their business and most of them are in the six figure revenue. So a yep. hundred thousand to a million dollars is our, the majority of our audience. Um, and we do have a good number of people who are already in the million dollars and multiple million dollar listeners. So we're targeting those people. You mentioned before that you need to have a million dollars in annual sales. 
And so let's say we're talking to that person who is at half a million. They're two years old, one year old, whatever, and they're growing quickly. They're not at a million dollars, but why don't you tell them like, what is the advice to those people? Yeah. So first and foremost, if there's interest in learning more about us, always feel free to reach out. Every lead or every sort of inbound request to chat, we always take. And that's just, we want to be good players within the marketplace, right? It's a relatively new market. And we know that a lot of sellers, this may be their first time that they've one operated a business or have thought about selling it. And so even if it's not a perfect fit right now, you know, we're always happy to sort of offer our views within the marketplace, how we sort of structure deals so that if the brand isn't, you know, a perfect fit, either size wise or or sort of category wise, then we're more than happy to sort of point them in the right direction of where more resources are. So that's first and foremost. Second is I would probably ask what has constrained the brand's growth up until that point? You know, is it inventory management? Is it sort of access to capital relating to inventory? You know, we have a recently announced partnership with Hardline Capital, which is a flexible financing provider specifically for Amazon FBA sellers. As we found that the most prevalent constraint to growth has been keeping up with inventory. You know, as you have to make these larger and larger inventory purchases, people get more and more hesitant as you put more of your personal balance sheet at risk, right? And so that's another solution that could be helpful for sellers if they do find themselves constrained by inventory purchases as a means of growth. And then as it relates to other sort of advice, it sort of comes into the strategy surrounding the brand. Are are you focusing on one hero product and sort of trying to drive as much revenue into that product as possible? Or is it sort of a a spray and pray method where you launch as many products as fast as you can and sort of drive revenue that way? From our perspective, and, and every buyer is different, but from our perspective, we find it most attractive if sellers are focusing on sort of one to four hero products driving you know, 65% plus of revenue and sort of just focusing all their efforts on that versus, you know, launching a thousand products or a thousand different SKUs that might be doing sort of 500,000 to a million dollars of revenue, right? Reason being is from our standpoint, you know, we own over 10,000 ASINs. So the risk of us acquiring a, a company that is basically concentrated within one product is a lot less just because it's sort of de-risked by the portfolio theory than sort of the idea of acquiring a business that might be doing a million dollars, but that's spread across sort of a, a thousand different SKUs, right? So the higher revenue, the lower the SKU count is particularly attractive to us. And so sort of, I would just think about strategies for growth as you look to scale. Interesting. So you do like the smaller skew count, higher revenue mm-hmm. thing then. Okay. Cause that's one thing a lot of people go back and forth on. I guess maybe Thrasher, like you said, has the portfolio philosophy or whatever, but I've been told by at least other brokers that the hero product is usually a negative for people. Cause if- yeah. So that ends up being sort of, it depends on who your buyer is, right? If you're looking to sell to, and I think that the market has shifted more towards more institutional buyers with more institutional funding coming into the space. But if you were to sell to me as an individual and you told me that there's, you know, your company is made up of one product doing 90% of revenue, sort of, if I'm thinking about it, yeah, I would be scared, right? Because if that one ASIN or that one product is suspended or what have you, or delisted, you know, that's a huge risk to me if I'm just purchasing that one business. 
but from you know more of an institutional player's thought process is okay I'm, I'm not just buying this one company i'm buying from our perspective over a hundred and that entails you know ten thousand plus asins so sort of it's more capital efficient from our standpoint to purchase sort of that one product generating a high amount of revenue than sort of purchasing the revenue across a thousand plus SKUs. Interesting. Okay. That's good to know. So if we're talking to that person who is doing something like $10,000 per month to $50,000 per month on that uh, solid six figure annual revenue, basically the big push is just get past a million dollar revenue, right? Just keep growing, right? Yeah. And look, like from our standpoint, I think that we're always happy to chat with sellers and, you know, for the right deal or the right product, you know, if you're a sneeze away from a million, let's call it 800, 850, 900K, you know, we're always more than happy to talk and we've, you know, done deals in that size range as well. So, you know, a million dollars is, I would say our threshold, but for the right opportunity. And if you're a sneeze away, then we're more than happy to, to take a serious look. Cool. Alrighty. So now the next person I want to talk to is the person who you said the bottom of your consideration revenue, 800,000. So doing 800,000 minimum, and then let's say up to 2 million a year or 3 million a year. So they're solid, you know, we would call a seven figure brand. Let's say they have one or two or three kind of leader manager type people inside the company. And then they have between one and six kind of doers, worker B people inside the company. Right. And probably, a, you know, whatever, various different levels of freelancer, contractor workers and stuff. Yep. Okay. So now we have, we have this business and let's say, let's just for, to make it simple, let's say it's a $2 million company that's doing 20% margin, right? So 20% margin on 2 million is $400,000 a year profit. Yep. Now, what is the advice for this company? This is something that's pretty appetizing to you guys, right? Yeah. Strikes on. Perfect. Strikes on. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Let's talk to these people. What can they do? What special things are you guys looking for inside of companies like that? That like makes it, let's say there's like 20 of them. Which of these different companies are your favorite? What kind of characteristics do they have? Yeah. So I would say sort of it's a, within a large category and sort of, I know all your, your listeners are, we have what we call sort of our cute. We're looking for reviews, the review mode within the product category. And what ends up happening is, you know, undoubtedly a seller asks me, well, how many reviews is, is a good amount? Well, it sort of depends on what category you're in. If you told me that you had 5,000 reviews, but you're in sort of the bedsheet space, I know that the top competitor has 150,000, right? So not great. But if you told me, and I don't know, I'm making this up. You told me that you're in the baby bottle category, you had 5,000 reviews and your next top competitor had, you know, two and a half or 2,000 reviews. Yeah. Okay. This, this, you got a pretty solid review mode there. That works. So I would say review mode is big. I would say product rating is huge. You know, our company mission is providing quality products at affordable prices for consumers. Right. And so, you know, we're buying products that have the social proof through the product rating mechanism to display that, you know, their quality. We don't want to send junk to consumers. And so, as that relates sort of 4.2 and higher in terms of product rating and really focusing on that is big for us, particularly really focusing on it as you're in that 4.2, 4.3 range, because we do find that sort of that bump between 4.2 and 4.3, where you get that four or four and a half stars becomes particularly important and sort of getting beyond that threshold 
I would say if, if your product ratings are 4.1 and lower, things become a lot less attractive. And then the last is reviews, ratings, and ranking. So, you know, within sort of focusing on getting into the top 10, you know, top five, top 10, top 15, sort of in terms of organic rank, for us, sort of our theory is acquiring the category leaders and then playing defense, right? For us, it's more capital efficient to, you know, acquire these leaders and then defend their position than it might be to, you know, acquire the 35th best sort of spatula or acquire the 35th best spatula and then try and work your way down to, you know, top 25, top 15, et cetera, right? If you can acquire the top five and then drive it to, you know, number one or number two, it's just time, effort, and money we find a lot longer there, right? And so I would focus on those three, reviews, ratings, and ranking. And then, you know, to all of your sellers or potential sellers is just focusing on, at least for us, picking products that don't have sort of a risk of technology obsolescence for us or or innovation, right? For us, I would say our strike zone product would be sort of the number one selling spatula, right? Where a spatula is a spatula is a spatula and consumers are largely using the social proof that Amazon has, has built as it relates to, you know, Amazon sort of taking away a consumer's work of thinking, right? If I'm buying a spatula, I don't really care about the brand, but I just want to see that it's, you know, at an affordable price and it's quality. So if it has a review mode and it has a solid product rating, then I'll probably buy it because I don't really care about what sort of brand I'm buying for a spatula. And you're probably not going to innovate the spatula product anytime soon. So I would say that's sort of our strike zone as it relates to sort of starting products as nice. well. I love that. R cubed, rank, reviews, rating. Cool. Yep. And also, of course, all those who are not that level, that is a good thing to keep in perspective to, to get up to. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those things are kind of hard to do. I mean, obviously there's a general, you want to generally push your company towards that, but many of these things take, you know, months or years and a decent amount of capital to get into, right? To get into 5,000 reviews would take quite a bit of time, right? Um, Is there any like small things that people can do to kind of fix their books or clean up stuff if they're looking to sell in the next like three months or something? Honestly, I would find sort of the biggest thing for just having a general understanding of legal structures and sort of how their business is actually formed is a big thing. As it relates to books, quite frankly, you know, we have sort of a come as you are policy. So we talk to a lot of sellers where they don't have financials and that's okay. Basically, as long as you provide us with Amazon transaction data and product costs, we're able to recreate a monthly profit and loss statement in a matter of basically two hours with some of the financial models that we run. And so I would say sort of the biggest thing relates to taking a look at at marketing, making sure that that's sort of optimized to the best of its ability and you're not over or underspending. I think that's probably a longer term play than sort of your three month window in terms of selling, but sort of having a general understanding of legal structure. And then, you know, from that standpoint, we're more than happy to sort of walk you through the entire process from getting the numbers from your account and putting it in a digestible format walking you through the deal structures and then sort of getting yourself, if you are sort of going down that road of selling, getting yourself to familiar with legal counsel mm. and, you know, possibly an accountant. Okay. So neither one of us are lawyers or accountants. So let's give Correct. general experiences for educational purposes. We're not giving legal advice or, or yes. accounting advice. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but in general, the ones that you, the companies that have done well that you've seen, how are they structured? 
Yeah. So disclaimer again, talk to your accountants, talk to your lawyers. Yeah. I would say sort of for us, it's pretty simple. Usually just an LLC, simple, straightforward. We do asset purchases, which is much less of a headache, both on the buyer and the seller side. And it's a lot cleaner and can you know move a lot quicker on average from the time that we sign a, a term sheet to the time that we actually close the transaction. It's on average 45 days. Quite frankly, we're actually below 35 at this point. I know I mentioned before, but being in the private equity and venture capital space prior to joining Thrasio, I can tell you that diligence period uh, can take a heck of a lot longer. There's a lot of tired kicking. It can be really arduous for the seller or the entrepreneur. And then a lot of times buyers will walk at the last minute. For us, we close on over 95% of term sheets that we do sign. So for all intents and purposes, when we do sign a term sheet, we have every intention of purchasing that brand. Awesome. Yeah. So, but you said LLC and, and just to clarify, and I know yep. neither one of us are, are lawyers or accountants, yep. but an S Corp is, yep. is an LLC to clarify for everyone, right? Yep. Yeah. So uh, have- S Corp is, uh, S-Corp is a different structure, I believe. Different tax structure. I think, oh man, this is, this is where we're getting a little bit in the, the zone where I might now be. Now we're getting into the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that all S-Corps are LLCs. The S-Corp is the tax designation and LLC is the legal designation. But I could, also, I could be super wrong. Please, let someone else Google that. Don't, don't believe anything yep. I say. Google. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, cool. Well, so now let's talk, like, let's talk numbers, right? So let's go with that company again. And this, for most of the audience, will be aspirational numbers. Well, let's say it's $2 million revenue and 20% yeah. profit. And I know you guys have an equation, right? It's like Amazon revenue minus cost of goods sold or production cost, freight cost. PPC costs, and then think you give a 4% overhead, right? Yeah. So, you know, typically if a seller is having us sort of recreate their books and they don't have sort of a good overview of what their operational expense looks like, you know, we'll peg it at 4% of revenue. Reason being is that any reasonable acquirer is going to have some sort of overhead to run the business. But, you know, for us, we don't want to run one third of a contractor's or one third of an employee's salary through that or, you know, company car expense or utilities, right? Like that just gets messy, especially if you have over a hundred brands. So for us to just to keep it clean and simple and to make sure that nothing is left to be fungible in the eyes of the seller who's selling their brand to us, the way that we sort of calculate, you know, net profit as it pertains to sort of our deal structure is Amazon revenue or, or brand revenue minus, like you said, product cost minus Amazon fees or merchant fees minus marketing minus that sort of fixed operational expense. So that's that's correct. Perfect. And so now we've clarified that that's what we mean by profit. It's just revenue yep. minus the cost to produce, ship, and advertise a product plus four percent overhead. Right. So pretty pretty basic. Yep. Not much other other overhead on top of that. Yep. And and I would say sort of if there are if a seller has their own books, then, you know, we're always more than happy to use sort of their numbers and, and what that looks like. And we use that 4% sort of as a, as a peg, but it's something that, you know, is always open for further discussion. Great. Okay. So now we have this $2 million yes. revenue business that 20% margin defined as by the numbers we just described. And so this company in your eyes is making $400,000 a year. What kind of multiples, what kind of sellout, what kind of, what do these numbers look like? Yeah, so I, I would probably say this is the biggest question that we hear all the time, right? For us, we're at this point over 40% of the buying market. And you know what we've found is the way that we structure our deals comes in, in four, four different components. 
first component upfront guaranteed payment due to the seller on the day of close, call it 45 days from the time that a term sheet is signed. The second component is what we call a stability payment. Third component is what we call an earnout, And then the fourth component just has to do with inventory. So upfront guaranteed payment, straightforward. The stability payment is basically saying, hey, look, Andrew and your listening audience, we all know sort of the different risks that come along with operating on Amazon and, and not implying that anyone is doing this. But we know that there's black hat attacks, fake five-star reviews, free giveaways, you name it, we've seen it. And just as a way to hedge against that, what we do is defer a small portion of the deal economics for 12 months post-acquisition. And it would be due to the seller just as long as the revenue remains flat compared to where we bought it. So really it's a stamp of confidence from the seller to say, hey, look, this business isn't built on a house of cards filled with fixed five-star reviews, et cetera, right? And then the third component, which we find sellers find most interesting, uh, has to do with what we call an earnout. It's basically saying, hey, look, guys, you know, we like the brand. We want to purchase it. We think that there's a lot of upside here. And I'm sure that, you know, you also think that there's a lot of upside. So the way that we structure it is the seller would be due 50% of all profit over the acquired profit. So in this case, the seller would be due 50% of profit over that $400,000 net profit mark for up to two years. And so, you know, on average, we've been able to uh, grow our brands over 150% 12 months post-acquisition, grow their net profit, I should clarify, over 150% 12 months post-acquisition, grow our top quartile of brands over 400%. And so this is where sort of we're able to drive outsized returns for sellers is through that earnout component and sort of the value of our earnout compared to others in the market becomes just juicier, right? We have the capital to be able to back it up. We have the track record of, of close to a hundred brands by the end of the quarter, hopefully, you know, over a hundred. Whereas that 150% average mark probably becomes a lot less attractive if you haven't purchased a brand yet, or you might be an institution and you might've purchased, you know, five or six sort of brands. Our averages are hashed out at this point, being the most established player in the market. And then the fourth component has to do with inventory. That just says that we typically aim to include 30 to 60 days of inventory value in the upfront purchase price. And then what we'll do is pay for the remaining balance in cash due on the day that the transaction closes. As it pertains to sort of what we've seen in the market, I would say sort of two to three times on that upfront guarantee portion is, is what we've seen as it pertains to sort of the stability payment ballpark, I would say sort of 0.15 to 0.3 times trailing 12 month seller discretionary earnings. And then sort of the earnout is sort of, we view sort of the upfront and the stability is, as table stakes, right? But sort of our key differentiator comes with the earnout and sort of the growth that we're able to drive just given sort of one, our track record, but two, sort of the resources that are available to us. Interesting. Cool. So let me recap, see if I can see if I understand everything. So we'll use real numbers or we'll use well, real fake numbers, <laughs> $400,000 net profit. Yep. And you guys are, you said two to two and a half on the first payment. Yeah. So, you know, I would say we've seen the market between two and, and three times on average, I would call it two and a half. Okay. So two, Oh, perfect. That makes the math easier. So two and a half yeah. times 400 is 1 million. Perfect. Boom. Yep. 1 million right there. And that's basically on day one of the contract being done. Right. Yes. 
And then you have another little percent, like a quarter percent. So in this case, it'd be a hundred thousand that is given out a year later, assuming everything's like hunky dory, you didn't screw up anything or that, sorry, yeah, and, and that, I, that the, that the person selling didn't, didn't screw you over. They didn't do any of the fake reviews or black hat or whatever. Right. Right. And, and I should preference this with saying on average, we've been able to grow our top line revenue over 200% 12 months post acquisition. So we've largely view it as an insurance policy. And so Yes, that smaller percent is just deferred for that 12 months just to make sure that everything's in good standing. Cool. Uh, but okay. yes, that would be about 100,000 ballpark. So a so million bucks for like, thanks, here's the contract. We now own your stuff. And then yeah. 100,000 comes making yeah. sure that just you didn't sell us some lemon, right? And so that the anti-lemon payment, that's $100,000, right? The whole right. back. <laughs> and then the profit share whatever yep. the increase in profit. So let's say you said that you guys are able to double the profit. So in this case, it's a hundred percent increase, right? So you are profit before was for hundred. That means the next year it'll be 800 according to your, right? That's what a hundred percent increase in profit means, right? 150, 150 is on okay. average. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, go with it. So 600,000 now yep. additional. So that, yeah, 600 additional. Yep. So that means a yep. million dollar income. Yeah. Okay. So a million dollar profit, the seller would get half of that increase. So in this case, so 600,000, we're getting, I know people who are driving and running right now, I know numbers aren't like fun to listen to, but we'll, we're coming to the very end here. <laughs> so 600,000, we would get yep. half of that. So 300,000. Over two year years. One. Yes. So yep. it would be year one, you'd get an additional theoretical $300,000. And then in year two, the baseline of that $400,000 net profit stays the same. So theoretically, let's say that the bottom line profit stayed steady at that million dollar mark in year two, you'd be due an additional $300,000, even if the business remained flatlined in year two. And so that gets you, you know, your multiples, if you start thinking about the earnout. And what I always tell sellers is, as you're exploring these sorts of acquisitions, whether or not there's interest in selling to us or what have you, just as good hygiene as an entrepreneur, do your due diligence on who the acquirer is. You know, what kind of funding do they have? Are they going to be around in two years? How many deals have they done? You know, have they been acquiring Amazon FBA businesses or are they quote unquote fast money where they think that there's a lot of money to be made here, a lot of quick money to be made here. And, you know, they're just getting into the space because it's hot, but don't have a general understanding of it versus, you know, people who have been established within the space and have been maniacally focused on driving bottom line growth to the brands that they do own. And, you know, I would also ask sort of what is the plan or, or what are these acquirers doing with the brands sort of post acquisition is the intent to sort of keep them for a year and then flip them. Or is it to hold on to them? I know from our standpoint, our whole focus is on holding and growing versus flipping and making quick money. So whether or not there's an intent to sell to us or interest in us, just as good hygiene as an entrepreneur, I always sort of direct sellers to, to ask those sorts of questions. Nice. That's good to know. And so with the multiple, let's see where we, where we, yeah, where we are. Right? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so so $400,000 net profit, uh, yep. get a million on day one, which really takes two or three months or whatever, two months to get to day one of the sale, right? So yep. a million and a hundred thousand kind of the anti-lemon payment and right. then increase in profit share was about 600,000. 
So that's yep. $1.7 million, which is just yep. a tick above four, four X multiple, whatever yep. your profit is. Thrasio is, and of course, condition on a bunch of stuff, this and that, and blah, 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 yada, yada. You know, yeah. uh, Thrasio is saying that you will get in that 4X ballpark. And that's what, and the deals that you do are, this is very common, these kind of deals for you guys. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are sort of run on the mill down the fairway. Sort of, we aim to get guys between four and six times. I would say it just has to be over that sort of deferred structured payment. I think a lot of times there's sort of a misinformation within the market that these things are going for four and six times, but sellers think that acquirers in the market are paying four to six times cash, sort of 45 days post-close. And quite frankly, that's just, that's just not going on. Yep, and if it sense. was, quite frankly, I would, I would tell someone, if someone wants to pay you six times seller discretionary earnings, take that deal. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, so guys, this is real. Like we said at the beginning, yes, you can sell your business. Yes, you can run a business in your pajamas from your living room and build it up. Of course, you have to be serious about it. You have to invest capital. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know it's, it's, you can do all this in your pajamas. You do have to know that stuff. It's not easy breezy. It does take years to do this stuff, usually at least, but it's real. You can really sell a business for a million bucks that you do from home. And if you build a brand developed the R cube, right? Rank reviews and ratings, right? For your product line. Yep. And so I know one thing, especially in the first few years when you're building your business, cash flow can be pretty terrible. And like you alluded to, Kevin, earlier, that cash can be a huge constraint. Like I always tell people, the most expensive thing that can happen to you is success in this business, yeah. right? So you place your first $10,000 order and you think it's three months worth of inventory, but it ends up being only two weeks of inventory. Oh crap, you like, oh yay, <laughs> you sold a lot of stuff inside of two weeks, $10,000 worth of inventory. However, now to buy three months of inventory, you need to, okay, sorry, take it back. We have $10,000 investment. We now have taken home $20,000. So $10,000 profit. Yay. We doubled our money inside of two months. That's fantastic. However, the next order is you need to order five times or six times as much. So now you need a $60,000 investment, but you only had $20,000 in your bank account. That sucks, right? That is success. That is why success can be expensive. So there's obviously lots of ways to get around that. We won't go into that kind of stuff, but the gist of this is that this stuff is well worth it. You can double your money by doing these kind of inventory, you know, investing in inventory and then building this business up. And the big day payday comes when you sell this brand and you can sell these brands for over a million dollars. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And I'll just plug sort of Yardline one more time. We do have a partnership with them as it relates to specifically that, that cash flow problem, specifically for Amazon FBA sellers and inventory financing. So, you know, shameless plug, but I will do it one last time. <laughs> no worries. Awesome. Cool, Kevin. Well, we're going a little long, so why don't we skip over some of the big stuff that we usually ask all of our guests. We can maybe have you come on later and we can do some of these things. But I do like to ask one piece of media. I do like asking everyone that. Is there a book or a podcast or something that you like that you want to share with everyone? Yeah. So I'm reading this book right now. It's called You Don't Own Me. And it's about the lawsuit between MGA, the owner of the Bratz dolls and Mattel, sort of the owner of the Barbie dolls and where intellectual property sits and is asking fundamental philosophical questions about sort of an employee employer relationship. Doesn't necessarily pertain to Amazon at all, but you know, just for a fun thought exercise, that's a good one. I would also point listeners to Selling Point. It's a new Thrasio podcast as well as Private Label Live, which is a live show that we do on Fridays. 
And we just had a, a recent sort of article pertaining to the former CFO of Amazon joining our board of directors on Monday. And yesterday we had, you know, a big splash piece in Forbes magazine. So a couple of other shameless plugs, but, you know, just different pieces of content if interested. Nice. All right. We'll make sure to include a link to the Forbes article, Forbes article, I'm making a note so we don't forget. It'll be in the show notes. What is one actionable thing that Amazon sellers can do today? I would just say one actionable thing would be thinking about really focusing on how they're driving to that $1 million growth standpoint. And I do think that sort of getting an understanding of what the legal structure looks like is, is really important. So I would say that's the one actionable thing. If you are thinking about selling, just having an understanding what that looks like is, I would say, huge. Perfect. Awesome. And Kevin, how can people learn more about you and Thrasio? Yeah. So our website, thrash.io, or my email, which is kevin.flaherty at thrash.io. You know, always happy to chat, learn more about the business and sellers. And so feel free to email me that way or, or reach out via our contact form. Perfect. And we'll have that in the show notes, but just to clarify, Thrasio is T-H-A-S points or period I-O, Thrasio. Yep. Yeah. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Hey guys, just want to let you know that my favorite tool to use for Amazon sales is Helium 10. I, I actually, I don't tell people I use Helium 10. I actually tell people that I live and breathe Helium 10. <laughs> so I literally use it like for hours every single day. I use the x-ray feature that tells me how many sales uh, you're likely to see on, a, on your competition and in potential new markets and stuff. I use Cerebro for reverse ASIN search to do keyword research. I use the keyword tracker to figure out like my rank on everything. And uh, Scribbles is <laughs> this fun, funny name of of the uh, of the tool they have inside to help build your listings. It's a really, really good tool. I use it all the time. There's so many features I can't even cover. And one thing that I'm so happy to say that uh, Helium 10 has offered a discount code only for our ZonCon audience. If you go to Helium 10 and use ZonCon 10, that's Z-O-N-C-O-N 10, you'll get 10% off for for the life of your subscription. If you want to just try it out and you don't feel confident in like uh, doing it forever, <laughs> um, I've, I've used it now for, uh, oh my God, five years. So very, very happy with it. But if you only want to try it out for a month, you can also use a discount code ZonCon50. We'll get you 50% off, but only for one month. So no risk trial here. <laughs> it's like, it's like super cheap, 30, 40, 50 bucks, whatever, like whatever, there's different tiers and stuff, but um, highly recommended go to helium10.com use ZonCon 10 for 10% off. We also have a link in the show notes that, that takes you directly there and applies a coupon code for you.